If there has been a book that has changed the course of history for portions of this world so that they enjoy great benefits, it is the book you hold in your hands. Right. And it's by understanding not only of the seven sermons that have gone before, but the one you're about to hear on the subject of authority that makes men free. You can go south of our border. My brother was there two weeks ago, just in Tijuana. You can cross a border, an imaginary line drawn on maps, and see abject poverty, cross a line, and people sit there with Pepsi cups hoping that you'll drop a quarter in their cup that they might live another day. And the good, the ones that are prosperous go home to their refried beans and their mud huts and their little adobe 400, 200, and 150 square foot houses and live a miserable life because of a religious system that has them in bondage that teaches authority as I have taught you authority without this message. That whatever that church teaches is the truth. And you cannot in your conscience question what that church teaches. And it starts, brethren, I don't want to get, I don't want to run this rabbit very far, but it starts with the concept of the mass of the Catholic Church. When you can take 850 million people around this world and convince them that when they put a little wafer on their tongue and that wafer dissolves in their mouth and is transported to their stomach and then transported into the draft, as the Savior would say, when you can convince them that though their senses and their minds are telling them it is but a wafer and you can convince them it's a God, you have people under bondage. Now that's a level of authority I have not taught in men teaching a doctrine like that and requiring people to believe it on pains of death or on pains of persecution against their own consciences and Holy Scripture. God hasn't required you to believe things like that. And it's the Word of God that makes men free. And this nation was based on the Word of God and men holding Scripture and men defending their ability to think and reason and men defending their conscience as convicted by God to be able to exercise that conscience in the worship of God. And this nation began without allowing Catholics freedom of religion. Because there is no freedom in that religion. It brings nations into bondage. You go north of our border. Canada is relatively prosperous until you enter that province called Quebec. Then you meet with some French-speaking Canadians who are Roman Catholics, and you run into poverty like Mexico again. It is amazing. You go to Europe, and you see nations where the gospel has been preached rather freely, and you see prosperity. You go into Italy, to Spain, and you are back in poverty. You are back in darkness, ignorance, superstition, and the people being enslaved by their, not only religious leaders, but their political leaders. Because once you beat a people down with their religion to where they'll believe that that wafer is God, they'll believe most anything else along with it. Brethren, the truth is glorious. The truth saves men. Amen. There's liberty in the gospel. There's freedom from slavery. There's hope for believers. And the balance of truth is glorious to see. And I'm not going to undo one thing I've said so far. Because everything I've said so far is in the scriptures. And as far as we are able, we are to submit ourselves to God's given positions and men of authority. And obey them in all subjection and fear. However, we have come to the point, the checks of authority. Are there any checks to save men? Are there any checks to keep men free? Are there any checks to protect the lives of men, women, and children if we believe authority as it's been taught? The checks of authority, and I don't want to be too long. I want to move through these because we've covered some of this in germ form before we got here to this point. But first of all, the great check of authority, do you need to think very hard? What is the great check of authority that keeps people safe in this universe? And it's God himself. God is, first of all, the great check of authority. How can a people with free minds believe what I have taught on authority confidently and be willing to do it without fear? The first antidote to any fear of what I've taught is that there is a God in charge of this universe. And he is above them all. Well, that is all positions of authority. First of all, he's a check. And we're, we've turned here to Psalm 76. And verse 10, because I want to remind you that never 
has any leader come on the scene. And never has any leader exercised his wrath, his sinful nature, in oppressing a people that God was not in control of. The oppression of men has never exceeded the will of God. The oppression of men has never displeased God in the sovereign sense of his will. Psalm 76 and verse 10 tells us, Surely, you know, that, that, word is, that word is not stuck in there just to fill up a verse and make sure that it can be justified on three lines or anything like that. That word is in there for our learning. Surely, because some people will question this, that's why it's there. Surely, the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shall thou restrain. And with a verse like that stuck in your back pocket, you can submit to a king, a pastor, a master, a husband, a father, in confidence. Because there's a God that said, Surely the wrath of man shall praise me, and the remainder of wrath I shall restrain. I'm changing it slightly because God did write this book. Surely, surely, God has not allowed any wrath to exist in this world that he has not restrained unless it was to work his will and his pleasure. And that, first of all, is a great check in authority. Men in authority have never exercised their authority against the will of God. God is higher than them all. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I believe we've looked at this verse twice, but three times will do us good. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You eat three times a day. I get to give it to you once a week. It's hardly even comparable. But Ecclesiastes 5.8. Listen, with a verse like this, you can think about authority. Remember, we're dealing with the theory of authority. We're not dealing with all the intricate aspects of practical submission. We've covered that elsewhere. The Bible and employment, maximizing your marriage, child training, and so forth. Here we're looking at the theory of authority according to God's word. Verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 5. If thou seest the oppression of the poor, and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Right. If you see oppression going on in a province, the first thing you can do is remember Psalm 76 and verse 10. Surely this must be pleasing and praising the Lord, or he'd restrain it. Therefore, he must have a purpose for it. And if they try to go beyond that purpose, he's going to stop it because there is one higher than they. And that statement does not do justice to the distance between the two. It's not just higher. One is infinitely high and one is very low when you think of men in positions of authority. But God is the great check. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Who is the greatest monarch with the greatest authority of life and death and glorious power that this world has ever seen in a human body with a human mind? What was his name? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. But we have a book in our Bibles dedicated to tell us that Nebuchadnezzar learned a lesson about political science and he did not learn it in the schools of the Chaldeans nor did he learn it at the Columbia Law School. He learned it from God Almighty in a most, and it took him seven years to get his graduate degree. It takes some men seven years today. Didn't it take him seven years to get that lesson through? Because we start over here in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. Daniel says this about God, and Nebuchadnezzar heard these words. Daniel 2, 21, speaking of God, he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings, he setteth up kings, he giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. Daniel taught this rule of political science. Check number one on all authority. God sets up kings, and God puts down kings. And God was able to do that to the greatest of kings, Nebuchadnezzar. We can go over to Daniel chapter 4. We don't even need to turn there. You know the story. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was on a leash. Driven from the presence of men. I don't know if he was on a leash or not. I say that to summarize. Hair growing out like bird feathers and nails growing out like bird claws. He was out like an animal. Driven from the presence of men. And seven times passed over him. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll know that seven years. Seven times passed over him until his reason returned to him. And he lifted up his eyes to heaven and acknowledged that there was a God who did according to his will 
in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none could stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And that that God was able to raise up over kingdoms the basest of men, and he was able to abase those that walked in pride, and Nebuchadnezzar had a graduate degree in political science. Because he understood the first check in authority, there is a God in heaven. And when there's a God in heaven, you can believe everything I have taught about authority. You can subject yourself to with all fear, not worrying about yourself. Until something is so obvious, you know you've got to take a stand. You don't have to quibble. You don't have to worry. Because there's a God on your side. Right. And I'm telling you to have a God on your side like that that raises up men against authority as we shall see and gives men leave to stand up and fear him rather than a king. It makes men courageous men. It makes normal men great men. The great men of history are men who had a sound grasp of this Bible and they were afraid of no man in any position of authority. But hear it. Hear it. There's a God in heaven. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. Here, old Nebuchadnezzar, I will read one verse, I have to. <laughs> Daniel, I mean, Daniel is a lesson. In when you can take the greatest monarch this world's ever seen, we don't, even, we don't even know what Nebuchadnezzar was like. We, we read some of the statements that just sound like a fable to think of power of pulling down someone's house and setting up the timbers and just hanging them and turning it into a dunghill. Believe me, that wasn't a figure of speech. When he said heat that furnace up, it wasn't a figure of speech. When he said seven times hotter, it wasn't a figure. I mean, they heated that thing up. So the men who were used to throwing things into that fiery furnace got sucked up on the way. I mean, that king had the power of life and death like a monarch we have never even imagined. Never even imagined. In Daniel 4 and verse 17 here is what God had to say about the king Nebuchadnezzar. This matter is by the decree of the watchers. You know, the, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian kings, the Persian kings, and so forth would say, I, Darius, have made the decree. Let it be done with speed. Well, there's one being that makes decrees himself, and they're done with more speed, and they overrule all decrees of men. That's right. Daniel 4.17, this matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of thy holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basis of men. There's no pride in being Nebuchadnezzar, is there? Because God's able to set up over the Babylonian Empire the basis of men. And God, listen, the matter of Daniel 4 is by the decree of the heavenly kingdom. And that is that the living might know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. There is no fear of earthly authority when you understand that the Most High rules. There is no monarch, pastor, master, husband, father that has done anything against a child, wife, members, or otherwise that God was not overseeing and had a glorious purpose in it. Never. Never. This will become very important when you are thinking about who to put your trust in. The person in authority of the God that's over them. Right. First of all, God is a great check of authority by purposing and approving all that is ever done in authority. Or it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Look at Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Let me give you one more verse on this point. First of all, is the great check of authority by the fact that no one gets into power, no one does anything in power without God having it as part of his purpose. Listen, there's decrees that are far higher than the decrees of the Persian Empire, and the decrees of the Persian Empire were a whole lot more firmer than the decrees of the United States of America. Revelation 13 and verse 7, this is talking about one of the beasts, a kingdom that would raise itself up against the Most High. Verse 7 of Revelation 13, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Now, I want to talk about oppression for just a minute. For 1,200 years, a beast, a kingdom in this world, raised itself up, and I'm rounding off when I say 1,200, raised itself up against the Lord Jesus Christ and made war against the saints of God and overcame them. Now, that's about as bad in the way of oppression as you can imagine. That is 1,000. 
260 years, and it's called war, and the saints were the victims, and the saints lost. That is papal Rome. That is the beast that came out of the wound, the deathly wound that pagan Rome received. And papal Rome revived upon her ashes and became the great enemy of Christ and his saints. In Revelation 13, 7, but I, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and that city of Rome ruled over the kings of the earth. But I want to ask you a question. This poor thing in Revelation 13, 7, this poor thing is in the passive, is receiving something in the passive voice. Someone else is doing the giving. Right. Someone else is doing the giving, and I ask you, who did the giving in Revelation 13, 7? God himself. I give, I give you right here from Scripture the worst case of oppression the world has ever seen, and God gave it. So anything you can pick up is going to be far less than this. You want to pick up the Holocaust of the Second World War, or Joseph Stalin, or Mao Zedong, and Red China, whatever, it pales compared to 1,260 years of oppression and victory. God did it. And it was given to him to make war with the saints. He had the ability given to him by God. It was given to him to overcome them. And it was given him to have power over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. God likes to make his enemies great before he obliterates them. Right. Revelation 13, 7. God is the check of authority in that there has been the exercise of no authority in this universe that God has not been in such control of it can be said in the greatest example of it he gave them the power and he gave them the victory make war with the saints of God I hope everyone hears that if you read that verse would it be easier for you to stand in the state would you be able to stand in the state God had given them the victory to test the saints of God for 1260 years and to win. You could give your life if you understood texts like this, and this is why the book of Revelation was given to confirm men in their faith that were going to have to give their lives when they were going to see the saints of God overcome by this great enemy that rose out of the destruction of pagan Rome in about three or four hundred AD. God is also the check of authority in the fact that he delivers and hears the afflicted and the oppressed. Do I need to turn you to Exodus 1, 2, 3, and so on, where God heard the cries of the Israelites as they were under hard bondage by their Egyptian taskmasters, and God said, their cry has come up to me into heaven. God hears the cry of those under authority where they're being oppressed, and he delivers them. We've looked at verses like this already, but let's look at a couple more. Look at the book of Judges. The book of Judges, chapter 2. Judges. What does the book of Judges tell us about? This is not a deep question. Tell us about the judges of Israel. How long were there judges over Israel? According to Acts 13. 450 years. So we've got 450 years here of God raising up judges. Do you think Samson was, was off at school someplace and heard some sermon preached and he thought he got a call to the judge field? And instead of the mission field, he got a call to the judge field? Listen, God raised up Samson before he was even conceived. And he's just one of the judges. And he raised up other men just like him. And God, will, God does this. Look at Judges 2, verse 18. How is God a check in authority? Because God raises up deliverers for those that are oppressed. Judges 2.18. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. Let's follow that verse. The Israelites were bad. God judged them by bringing them under the authority of a usurping foreign power. Under that foreign usurping power, they cried out by reason of their affliction. They had been bad. They were getting what they deserved. God still saw the oppression of men taking advantage of his children that were simply being chastened by him. And so he would raise up a judge, and all the days of the life of that judge, he would deliver them from their enemies. Now that is a God that is taking disobedient children 
who were crying out by reason of the oppression of their enemies and delivering them. And you know, what would happen as soon as the judge would die? I mean, was the real revival in Israel in the book of Judges? What would happen as soon as he died? They'd go a whoring right after their false gods again, and they'd be brought back under some other foreign power. But I want to tell you something, there's a check in authority, and it's Almighty God looking down and seeing the oppression of his people. There's some books, you know, there are some books in the Bible dedicated judgment of people who when God judged Israel and took them captive into Babylon, there were some neighboring nations that sat around rubbing their hands and saying, wait till the Babylonians leave, we're going to go in and clean up everything they left, like vultures. And there's books, there are books of your Bible dedicated to the destruction of those people. Alright. Go read Obadiah. Judges 2.18, the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. God has always done that, and God will continue to do that. Right. Look at Psalm 10. The great check in authority. How can you submit to authority? By confidence in God that he controls who it is and what they do, and by the fact that he hears and delivers those that are oppressed even when they're disobedient children. Psalm 10 and verse 14, Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite, to requite it with thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee, thou art the helper of the fatherless. Now that's a lot for one sentence, but that is the word of the Lord about God. Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite, to requite it with thy hand. God's hand will repay them. The poor committeth himself unto thee, thou art the helper of the fatherless. The point is, you can submit to authority and believe in it the way I've taught it, the way the word of God presents it, if you have confidence in a God like that, who always is the help of the fatherless, who hears and requites, and he will. If you are oppressed by someone in authority, whether it be a husband, a father, a pastor, or otherwise, if you are oppressed, but yet the oppression has not yet come to the place where you have to disobey in rebellion. In order to preserve your life or in order to keep God's commandments, God still sees the oppression and will judge those in authority. You know, I've been preaching so far that you are to submit yourself and obey the forward master, and you are. But guess what? There is one higher than the forward master who will requite the spite and who will requite the mischief of the forward master. You see the balance? It's not our place to check that directly yet it's god's place and he does it and if you know god does it it's easier to submit to it if you know that god is going to requite forwardness and the part of a forward master it's easier to submit to it for a time if you believe that look at proverbs 29 proverbs 29 proverbs 29 verse 26 many seek the ruler's favor if you get the ruler on your side then you're all safe right you can sleep safely at night if the ruler's on your side. Many seek the ruler's favor. But every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. God will judge regardless of what you try to do with a man's favor or a ruler's favor. God is still in charge. Because he is going to judge anyway, whether that be judgment and punishment or judgment on your behalf in delivering you. Let's go to another sense of God being the check of authority. In the third sense, he is the check of authority by controlling the hearts of men. He puts the men in power, like Nebuchadnezzar, like the enemies that came over Israel in the book of Judges. He puts them in power. But then he delivers his people by seeing their affliction. But he also controls the men that are in a power day to day, week to week, in how they behave toward their subjects. Look at Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Brother Jeff, here's the verse you were asking about. Exodus 34. Here's how God, you know, and, and everything you've heard about authority is, what's the limit? They could do anything they wanted if they had authority like you preached it. They could do anything God wanted. Is point number one. God is the great check on authority. Exodus 34, verse 23. Thrice in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. 
Now think about that. There were places that God had chosen where he wanted to be worshipped every year in Israel. And three times a year, all the men, including the men children, all the men had to assemble at these places to worship God, leaving their families. What does God say? Verse 24, For I will cast out the nations before thee, and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land, when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. I don't care how great the king was that bordered Israel. I don't care how ambitious he was. God can simply say, it's time for them to worship me, and that king wasn't even going to want it. He'd rather be off wild boar hunting, or bass fishing, or something else. And he wouldn't want to touch the lands of Israel. Look at that. God controlling the hearts of wicked, pagan, enemy kings of Israel. Who can witness all the men disappeared. All the men. Now what would you do if you were king? You'd say, let's go. Let's go. But they didn't. God took away their desire. God is the great check of authority. Think about what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking away the depravity of an unregenerate heart. Not taking it away so that they worshiped and feared God, but taking away the desire or the ability to fulfill that desire. Right. right. They just want to stay at home. Just want to stay at home. And provide a nice buffer zone for all the ladies that were still at their homes and didn't even take advantage of that. He's the great check by moving rulers' hearts. Do I need to turn you to Ezra chapter 1 where Cyrus said, The Lord God hath charged me that I should build him a house. Do you want to talk about moving a king's heart? Cyrus, king of Persia. He whipped the Babylonian Empire. And he said, The Lord God hath charged me to build him a house. Now, therefore, all of you Jews that want to go back to Israel and build the temple in Jerusalem and restore that city and build up the wall, go. And it'll be paid for at the king's tribute on the other side of the river. Now, you, you want to talk about moving a king's heart? How long were the people of God in Babylon? How long? Seventy years. Were they there one day longer than God wanted them to be there? Did they deserve to be there for 70 years? Did God help them have a decent time of punishment for 70 years? What did he tell them? Marry, plant vineyards, live in houses, pray for the peace of the place and you can have peace while you're there. And 70 years later, he took them out with a decree coming down from the highest authority. God hath charged me to build him a house. I, I love that so much. Now, we can't take time to run through Isaiah 44 and 45 again, but read those verses. Read those verses about how God called Cyrus his servant. Why I'm going to hold him by the hand and lead him through dark places and open the treasures of Babylon for him. And they're going to leave open the bronze gates and he'll walk into the city without a fight while Belteshazzar's in there lifting his golden chalice in blasphemy against the God of Israel. The city was taken without hardly any effort. What a story. Can God move the hearts of men? That's a great check on authority. Queen Esther, she did something that wasn't lawful. What was it? She went to the king without a request. The king didn't want to see anybody unless he asked for you. You don't even know how to think that way. Isn't that rude? <laughs> Would you tell him that? <laughs> Would you suggest etiquette course for King Ahasuerus? And she said, pray for me for three days. And she went in before the king and stood there, and he raised that scepter. Who moved the heart of that king before we get to that point? She went in and saw the king on a night where she did have his request. And that was when he was having his beauty contest, winner take all. What happened that night? She had the favor of that king and he made her the queen of Persia. Can you imagine some little orphan Jew becoming the queen of Persia? Can God move the hearts of kings? And then, he, then she came in against the law, and said, we'll get to that again. But she stood there in the court and raised the scepter and said, what do you want up to half the kingdom? And all she wanted was his friend. And that was easily enough granted after the Lord moved his heart further. Oh, the Lord can move the hearts of kings. Look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Oh, it's verses like this, brethren, that give God's people hope and courage and comfort and peace under authority. 
under oppressive authority that there's a God in heaven that can change the hearts of kings. Psalm 105. Speaking of the beginnings of the people of Israel when they were but a few men in number, verse 12, when they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, that is, in the land of Canaan. Verse 13, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not my anointed, and do my prophets no harm. I mean, when God had just a few people, you don't have to worry about being some great multitude. Now, the Bible says a very few. It wants to make a point of emphasis here. A very few. When they were traveling through Canaan, God rebuked kings for their sakes and touched not mine anointed. God can say that again. God can say that to you under me as your pastor. God can say it to you under some oppressive husband. God can say it to children under a father. God can say it to you if you've got a boss that is forward and uses spite and mischief against you. Don't forget it. He sees and he will requite. Listen, there's comfort in that. There is comfort in that to go ahead and serve your best, even to a forward master, realizing I'm not going to worry about the matter. Like Solomon said, I'm going to see violent perverting of justice in a province and not worry about it. Because there's one higher than they. And God can move the hearts of those men. We all know the verse, right? Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. He turneth it whithersoever he will. They can have a cabinet meeting in Washington, D.C. And I give them no disrespect. But if we have a prayer meeting, and there are some righteous men here that with fervency beseech the God of heaven, we can accomplish more for the future prosperity of this nation than a cabinet meeting in Washington. Because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And they're not talking about it being there when they meet. And if we are, we've got a big advantage. You know, those men might turn to the president, the president might turn to them and say, what's in your heart? See, we're operating at a level level far higher than that. We're operating at the level of a God who can put in their hearts what they say. That's right. God can move the hearts of men. What a check on authority that is. Look at Revelation 17. sense that somebody's pulse is quickening. We're turning to the forbidden book. Revelation 17. (laughs) Revelation 17. Dealing with the same subject as as chapter 13, and that is a great beast. And don't envision some animal in your mind. Envision a kingdom. Beast and prophecy are kingdoms. So envision a kingdom that God would raise up Verse 14, they would make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb would overcome them eventually, and so forth. We've already looked at that kingdom. But I want you to see something about it. Verse 17, there are ten horns on this beast that represent ten minor kingdoms and ten kings, which are the ten common market nations of Europe as we understand them today, which are the results, the fragments of the Roman Empire when it fell apart under its pagan rulers. The Roman Empire fell apart into ten smaller kingdoms. But then an eleventh horn grew out of that beast that appeared to be dead, combining Revelation and Daniel, and a little horn came up and took control of those other ten. So that at the end of chapter 17, we can read that that city of Rome reigns over the kings of the earth. Because those of you who've read even a little bit of history have read how the kings of Europe had to come and be crowned by the Pope of Rome. But look at verse 17. Speaking of those ten kingdoms and their kings, God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. The Pope of Rome has never really killed that many saints. The Pope of Rome used the civil authority of the kings that were under him to kill the saints. You know, the Pope didn't ever want to get his hands dirty, so he used the civil authority. But how did he get control of that civil authority? I ask you, how did he get control of it? 
Is it because the Pope had power from the devil that transcended the power of God and the saints of God and the prayers of God? Or is it because of Revelation 17, 17 that says, I put it in their hearts. I wanted Europe under one ruler, papal Rome, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast. Have you ever read anything about the power of the Vatican? Militarily? Militarily. It never had any. Then why would nations subject themselves to it? Oh, listen. If they would have marched on the Vatican, what's he going to do? Throw the cardinals at them? <laughs> you say, but there were nine other kings that would have fought for the Pope. Yes, there were. And that's why there wasn't a tenth to try to make war very often, because God put in all of their hearts to fulfill his will and to give their kingdom to the beast. What man that was a king would get down on his hands and knees with a pope crowned him with his feet? Would you do it? What caused them to do that? Revelation 17, 17. And listen, if we had been living in some cave in the Alps and we had a scrap of Revelation, they had those verses on there, it sure would help. Right. Wouldn't it? People wonder, what the, what's the book of Revelation for? For 2,000, well, for 1,200 years specifically, people have used this book to give them faith. Right. Amen. And do you know why it's hard to preach out of this book? Because we don't know history well enough and we are removed from the action. God said he gave prophecy so that when it occurs, we would know that God told about it in advance. And you know, we are so far removed that to go back and find the events that fulfill this book are difficult for us. That is why your pulse is quickening to no avail. I can help you in some sections of this book, but there are sections that are still difficult because I want to give you something as specific as I can. There are some sections that are relatively easy. 12, 13, 17, 18 are all rather easy to look at and see that kingdom fulfillment in papal Rome. But the people that lived then would have understood it. They were living right. in the midst of it. Just like it's hard for us to take the book of Daniel and put specific events on all that's recorded there, although we know it's past because the Lord told us that the first of those four kingdoms have already come and gone. We're so far removed. My point is this. God is a check on authority. And how's he a check? He controls the hearts of kings. I don't care how wicked they are. They're giving their kingdom to the beast. He put it in their hearts. You know, anybody who wants to throw up arguments against the sovereignty of God and his predestinating decrees that govern the thoughts and intents and wickedness of men, take on a few of these verses and swallow them and give them back to me in any other way than I've given them to you. Right. This is the word of the Lord. He has put in their hearts to fulfill his will. And if you want to talk about a wicked deed, it's subjecting their kingdoms to the Pope of Rome. He has put in their hearts to fulfill his will. All the while, his will was, thou shalt not worship the beast. A predestinated sovereign will of God and a revealed will of God that should have been obeyed. Right. Just like thou shalt not kill, and it was his will and pleasure that the Roman soldiers and the Jews bruised the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, we have a suffer. It is the sovereignty of God, brethren, that makes men great. It is the sovereignty of God that makes men great. You want to see weak men? Men that don't have a sovereign God behind them. You have a sovereign God behind you, you can do anything. Amen. You can take anything, even if it's against you. You can be a saint of God and cheerfully go to the stake because you read about a sovereign God that put it in their hearts that they were going to win. And they did win. They overcame them. But they also knew that eventually they would overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And have they? We benefit from the word of their testimony. Right. How does God check those in authority? God can check those in authority by creating revolts in their kingdom. How about Rehoboam? He lost ten tribes by the will of God. God can check those in authority with dreams. Can you think about a pagan king of a pagan nation that took a saint of God and made him first in the kingdom when he was out of his throne by a dream? 
Can our God check authority? Why did he do that? Do you want to know why he did that? Do you really want to know why he did that? Do you want to know why he took a nation of 10 million inhabitants? Let's throw a number at it. 10 million inhabitants with a king that was the greatest at that time in the world. Why he would promote a man from the innermost prison all the way to the pinnacle of power in that nation. I'll tell you why. Because there were 75 people that needed to be taken care of. Read about it over and over again. 75. You say, would God sacrifice 10 million people for 75? If once in a while, in their pitifully weak and sinful efforts, they stagger out of their homes and erected an altar to the Most High God and begged Him for deliverance. That's about the way they live. You want to read about the life of Jacob and his sons? The wickedness, selling brothers, incest with their father's concubines, murdering a city, after coveting with that city, not to do any harm. Read about those boys. But you know what they did once in a while? I'm telling you, there's comfort in Scripture. Once in a while, they made it out to an altar that they reared up to the God of heaven and said, help us. And 75 people were taken down into Egypt and placed in the very best property in Egypt where they could be preserved during a famine. If you ever think that because our church isn't big enough, our prayers can't get anywhere, remember 75. Remember 75. We have 69 members. There are six more here. want to cast in their lot with us, we'd be 75. Read it. Now in some places it says 70, but I wanted to use the larger number. <laughs> 75 souls. That is glorious. And you know Joseph. Was Joseph taken advantage of by some who believed in might makes right? Follow me. Have you ever heard that statement, might makes right? Well, who was stronger than Joseph one day when he went out to visit his brethren in the field? his brothers. They sold him. Was he taken advantage of by his master's wife? Yes. What did he say of all that later? God intended for good. God intended for good. If you lose sight of what I'm saying right now, we'll end up in Jim Jones's camp. But if you keep what I'm telling you right now, we'll never get near it. We'll never get near it. There is a God that delivers men, even when there is oppression. Did Joseph try anything against Potiphar's wife, against Potiphar? Did Joseph try anything? He submitted. He submitted, and the Lord was with him. And the Lord raised him up as high as you could get. With the wrong last name, that is. I mean, he couldn't become Pharaoh, but he was, he was first in the kingdom when Pharaoh was in his throne. God's able to do that. Look at the way God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar by evil circumstances. Look at the way the disease took care of Isaiah. Isaiah was a king who thought he could play priest one day, and he walked into the Holy of Holies while the priests of God stood there in absolute shock and said, Don't go in there. And he walked in, he came back out, and while, they, while he stood there, the leprosy came right up through that man's body and appeared in his face. God can use disease to check those that are in authority who abuse their authority. And listen, God can take away those who abuse their authority. I read about Herod over there in Acts chapter 12. Let's take a New Testament example. And he made a most eloquent speech one day, and the people cried out, oh, it's the voice of a God, because they were trying to make friends with him, because their nation was fed by Herod's. God smote him dead in the spot. There is a God in heaven. The first check in authority, there is a God. That God puts in authority the men he wants there and gives them the power to, to do and the limitations on what they do. That God hears the cry of the oppressed and afflicted that are under their rule and delivers them. That God can move rulers' hearts that even though they're pagan rulers can do most amazing things by changing their hearts. Let me, let's just talk about that for a minute. Does our nation endorse abortion? Zero population growth, no families, a one a one child per family birth rate is that what our nation is that what it supports endorses teaches isn't that the generally accepted principle of the higher powers in our nation the IRS uses words like that ministers of the gospel the IRS uses words like that this week 
This past week, there was a presentation made to our legislators that they ought to double the personal exemption. Now, do you know what doubling the personal exemption encourages people to do? It encourages them to use other things than electric blankets during the winter. It encourages them to have large families, for those of you who are stunned by the heat here tonight. A nation that has endorsed abortion thinking of doing that. Hasn't it raised that personal exemption the last few years? Boy, when you get to that line and you've got several children and you get to add yourself and your wife and multiply it by 2,000, don't you get a grin? <laughs> That's glorious. God moved them to support large families when the nation has endorsed and made legal abortion. I can't wait till they double it. <laughs> if, we had, if we had 10 last year with only 2,000 per exemption, what will happen if it's 4,000? <laughs> Rhonda had this morning, what if I had twins? She was trying to calculate for Jeff what twins would be worth before December 31st. <laughs> He's already had an effect on her, hasn't he? <laughs> She's hoping she can get her twins in before December 31st. And if they double the exemption, can you imagine $8,000? off of Jackson, Jeff's taxable income? I, I believe it could happen. And it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. And the perversity of it makes sense to me. They don't know what they're doing. God's moving them. God has put in their hearts to fulfill His will. And His will is, let's help the Greenville Church out with their large family. <laughs> And I don't think it needs to be a group any bigger than the Greenville Church for God to move a nation. Amen. Because the 75 people and God moved a whole nation. God can do it. He's better than our own nation. I hope, you know, when you write out your check to the Greenville Church and you look at your tax return and you drop your amount and your charitable contributions, remember, they don't ask for you to prove it. You can give it in cash. Still. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And they subsidize the preaching of the gospel. They ought to subsidize this preaching. Listen, I've exalted them pretty highly the last seven weeks. And I'm not just, remember the book of remember the book of Ezra, where Darius, the king of Persia, said, I want that temple rebuilt over there in Jerusalem because I want those people to pray for me and my sons. Do you remember that? That is not a vain effort on the part of governments to support those that have the true religion. Right. And I wasn't, I wasn't jesting when I said that because I remember what Darius said, and I don't blame him one bit. I want that temple rebuilt because I want somebody on their knees praying for me and my sons. And that is specifically why he said he wanted that built with haste. And why you people who are objecting against it, you pay for it. That's a glorious story. God is a check on authority. Do you know what I've just told you in the last few minutes? I have told you what makes normal men great men and weak men brave men, by having a confidence in a God that will deliver them. You can wander about Canaan with a small band of people and trust that God will rebuke kings for your sake, saying, don't you dare touch my anointed. I mean, poor Abraham lost Sarah one night, didn't he? You know where I imagine she spent that night? Now, I know it doesn't say that, but let, you know why I conclude that? She spent that night in bed with him, but he didn't touch her. Now, why would, this, why would the Lord have said, I kept you from touching her unless she was close enough to touch? I mean, it doesn't say that, but I want to point out one thing. Abraham spent one night without his wife. That's when he rebuked the king for the sake of Abraham, simply for the sake of Abraham's marriage. Isn't that glorious? That's the God we worship. Therefore, that is check number one. Therefore, check number two is prayer. That ought to make sense, shouldn't it? Right. Check number two is prayer. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Check on authority. And you know, most of the examples I've given you are kings, but if we use a king, what, an argument, a rule of reasoning, is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If something is true of a greater situation, then it has to be true of a lesser situation. The Bible argues that way a number of times. 
For instance, let me argue from the lesser to the greater, since my weak mind is all I can think of right now. Jesus said that not a sparrow could fall to the ground without his heavenly Father. And ye are far, far more important than sparrows. The argument is from the lesser to the greater. If God takes care for sparrows, certainly he takes care for his people. Therefore, if I can establish points of authority relative to kings that are the greatest position of authority in this world, surely that applies to the positions of authority below them, like husbands, fathers, pastors, and masters. Prayer. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy. Look, no, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. This is some of the first instruction Paul gave Timothy on what he ought to give churches. And then he says in the first verse of chapter 2, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplication, prayer, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Somebody will say, the way you preach for seven weeks, why, I don't know how anybody could ever have a quiet and peaceable life. People could take advantage of them. They could wreak havoc in their lives. They could oppress them and afflict them. We're to pray to the God of heaven who rules in this world. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, we pray for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You will find very little about marching on Rome. You will find very little about signing a petition to Caesar saying we're not going to pay our taxes this year until you redress our grievances. <laughs> oh, can you imagine Caesar getting a letter like that? How many call for convention in Rome, wouldn't he? Come and bring your complaints. <laughs> As they barred the doors from the outside, right? Can you imagine? There, there isn't that something like that in the Bible. What's the check on authority? What is the check on authority? Prayer. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. God can move Caesars. Remember when Paul was writing. He wasn't writing about benevolent rulers like President Bush. He was writing about Caesars. The man that wrote this gave his life in that city. I am now ready to be offered at the hand of the same man he said to pray for that we may lead a quiet and peaceful. Somebody will say, well, that doesn't sound very quiet and peaceable to me to have to lay down your life to the man you prayed for. God had a purpose in that. You know why? Because the Apostle Paul participated in the death of some of God's saints. And God appeared to him and told him what great things he would suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he did it. He did it cheerfully joyfully, and he did it with quietness and peace, even though he gave his life. Right. I'll bet we all lust after the way the Apostle Paul died. And I mean that in a good sense. Covered the best gifts. Paul would have died a good death. If you read about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, I'm ready. I'm ready. Pray for kings and for all in authority we may lead quiet and peaceful lives. Your bosses, your pastors, your husbands if you're women, your parents if you're children. When was the last time you prayed for your parents? That you can have a quiet and peaceable life. Pray for all their authority. Prayer is a great second check because it's based on God moving men. I can't, what else can I say? These are the kings of the Roman Empire. Pray for them. By praying for them, you can lead a quiet and peaceable life. They'll pass legislation. They'll leave your little province alone. Why, they might even send a garrison that you can sell your leather boots to and get rich off them. It's, a, it's amazing what God's done. Right. You know, God said that you would make kings and queens our nursing fathers and nursing mothers. Pray for them. A quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Still being able to live godly, still being able to live honestly, and only having quiet and peace as a result instead of persecution. Look at Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Oh, Scripture, if you ever understand the context and think about it, it's so powerful. If they had a hope for influencing government, praying about a pagan Roman government, should we have hope? 
More hope. We ought to have more. Our national leaders have just acknowledged God before and after a, a victory in battle. You can question all you want. There's a God in heaven that knows their hearts, and you do not. At least they opened their lips and said a name. When so many in our nation would not even have that name ever said and wipe it off our coins and our money and out of the Pledge of Allegiance and everything. Amen. They still said it. They opened their lips and with their glory they said the name of our God. Jeremiah 29. Look at this example. I know what, we, we've read this before, but listen. You can't forget this. In Babylon, a foreign usurping power, pagan government. Here are the Israelites, and here's the advice that God gives them. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives. God's people being disobedient, he still has advice for them to have a quiet and peaceable life. That amazes me. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses and dwell in them. And plant gardens that eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. That they may bear sons and daughters that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Though it was Babylon. Though they were pagan. Though they had false gods. Though they were there for their disobedience. I, can I emphasize that anymore? They were there for their disobedience. God still said, I have in mind for you at least a peaceable chastisement for the next 70 years. And you might as well grow while you're there under my chastening. And you might as well enjoy some vineyards and houses, but pray for the peace of that place, because in the peace of Babylon you'll have peace. For 70 years they had peace. Who was going to take on the nation of Babylon? The queen that said, I shall sit forever? No one. Until the 70 years were expired. And then Cyrus came along. And was that, a, was that a battle that would have destroyed the lives of many saints? He walked into the city and took it while they had a drunken feast. In that night was Belteshazzar slain. Amazing. Amazing. Have, have that city overthrown without bloodshed or very little? Pray for the peace. Pray for the peace of the city where you've been carried captive, and in her peace you'll have peace. The second check in authority is to pray. You pray to have peace in this church. You pray to have a wise and understanding pastor. You pray for your masters at work, and God will bless you. You pray for peace on the job. And God will bless you. I've already referred to the next past reference I want to look at in Ezra 6 where Darius said, I want that temple rebuilt so that you may pray for me and my son. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm glad I, I no longer use a lapel mic. The things I say when I look at my clock. <laughs> I had I don't mean that in any bad way. It's just you know like, oh boy. <laughs> this is pitiful. I look at everything I wanted to cover and how little we covered, but I hope you've been encouraged in your heart that we believe in a God that has delivered people. And no matter how much we submit ourselves to authorities. There's a God that put them there, that moves them, and that delivers the afflicted under their reign. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we're dealing with the second check of authority. That is prayer. Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah was the cup, was the, the cup's king bearer. He was the king's cup bearer. That is. You know, when Paul said he had an earthen vessel, what do you call mine? <laughs> I have, you know, I hate it when I have to go home and hear it from my children. You know, about Moses and the ark and different things that come out of me. I do And I have to repeat myself three or four times. But my mind is thinking of the next point. 
chapter 2. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. This was the king of Persia called Artaxerxes here. He's Ahasuerus in other places and he's Darius in other places from that. Nehemiah 2 verse 1, it came to pass in the month Nisan. In the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, the wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. Do you understand why he was very sore afraid? You didn't come in there just because you were in depression and, and, and be sad before the king. Sorrow of heart, and that's depression. It's just discouraged. If he'd been sick, maybe some allowance for it. The king's reasoning. You're not sick, so it's sorrow of heart. Now, how in the world can you have sorrow of heart serving me? King has that right. Husbands have that right. Fathers ought to exercise that right. You shouldn't have your children take the trash out to the street with a grimace on their face. They ought to take it out cheerfully. And when you ask them to come across the yard to get something from you, they ought to run. They ought not to just shuffle. There's nothing wrong with that. There's something about an attitude and a spirit that if you go after it, you'll check a lot of problems in the bud before they're actually flagrant rebellion. Right. These kings, they weren't going to have somebody in their presence that showed something by spirit that there was something wrong inside. I was very sore afraid. Instead of the king, let the king live forever. That's a good answer. A good answer. Soft words turn the way wrath. Let the king live forever. There's so much on it. There's so much wisdom in just watching exchanges like this. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? You have King Artaxerxes on the throne, and you have a cupbearer standing before you. And you have an exchange going on that involves the life and death of the cupbearer and the future of a nation. And a verbal conversation is going on, and we have a glorious sentence in the last part of verse 4, don't we? Do you think he did this out loud? He just offered up something inside as he approached this king. This king had just said, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. You know, there are some statements, I don't know what else to say. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said it to the kings. Look at the combination. When you go to the polls, pray to the God of heaven. Cast your vote. And I said it unto the king. If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, and you guess who that was, for how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. You want to talk about a quick answer to prayer? I bet that was a real long prayer, though, wasn't it? So I pray to the God of heaven. This doesn't say, so I pray to God. So I pray to the God of heaven, who doeth according to his will in the entirety of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And the king said, how long do you want? You want to leave of absence, how long? And he set the time, and he went. These are men that prayed. This is the second check on authority. Look at Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, with this verse, we'll close for this evening. Hebrews 13. Pray for kings and for all their authority. Pray for the peace of Babylon, for in her peace you'll have peace. Darius begged for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, so that the people there would pray for him and his son. Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven that our exorcists and grand him leave to return to Jerusalem. But I want to move to a minister. Hebrews 13 and verse 18. Could Jim Jones occur? by a faithful people 
who prayed the God of heaven? No. Hebrews 13, 18. The Apostle Paul wraps up this great epistle to the Hebrews, and he says about himself and the other elders that he has just referred to in verse 17, pray for us. Pray for us. Now notice what the man adds after that. For we trust, we have a good conscience, in all things willing to live honestly. For we trust, we have a good conscience, in all things willing to live honestly. The Apostle Paul in one verse puts forth, puts forward the fact that in his conscience he was trying to live honestly. And that's what more can you expect from any man that you're under the authority of? Paul was saying, as far as I'm concerned, as far as the elders are concerned, that I've ordained and that you are under, we trust, we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. What do they need beyond that? The God of heaven, controlling, directing, and by his providence keeping them from straying from that. Pray for us. We trust. We have a conscience that in all things is willing to live honestly, but pray for us. Notice the combination. That's what you want. You want a father. You want a husband. You want a master, a pastor, a king that would say, I trust. I have a clean conscience in the way I'm exercising my office towards you willing to live honestly, not trying to deceive you, take advantage of you, but pray for us. Pray for us. You need both. You want to see both. But notice, pray for us. Those people under Jim Jones could have been preserved, and so could all others, if they would thank God on behalf of their ministers. If God can move kings, there would be no effort on his part to move ministers. Pray for your pastors. Pray for God's pastors, wherever they might be. Pray for them. Pray for all that are in authority. And we should apply that. We don't do enough of it. And we shall do more, the Lord willing. I did not get very far, but I hope I got far enough to show you where courage has come from. First of all, it is the Most High ruler in the earth how he governs the affairs of men and then by calling upon him we can have more effect in this room and you say but we're sinners sometimes i feel so cold and lethargic toward the worship of god i don't know if god ever hears me just go read the history of jacob and his sons and wonder why god preserved them right. 75 souls he moved a nation to put joseph at the pinnacle of power and keep those people alive. And when he took that people out of the nation, they took wages for all the years they worked for free. And God blessed them abundantly and destroyed a nation. You know what the Bible says? About the transaction by taking Israel out of that nation and drowning their army in the Red Sea and taking all of their wealth? <coughs> I gave Egypt as your ransom. I could show you statement upon statement upon statement. I redeemed you, and the price I paid was Egypt's wealth and military and livestock and everything else after those plagues. I gave them as a ransom for you, 75 souls. God-fearing, God-fearing, they get to the Red Sea, 